Since 2016, policymakers in the U.S. and in other developed nations have been preoccupied by the growing challenge of social and economic disconnection of workers who have been displaced by the problem of deindustrialization. As automation and offshoring have reduced employment in traditional manufacturing, many workers have found themselves unemployed and often unemployable. This problem of chronic unemployment has given rise to the so-called deaths of despair, falling life expectancy among white working-class individuals, chiefly men, accompanied by rising rates of addiction, overdoses, and suicide. Two scholars at Princeton University, the husband and wife team of Anne Case and Angus Deaton, brought these deaths and their theories about what's causing them to public attention in 2015. Their academic papers on the topic have now been turned into an important new book, Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism. Dr. Case and Dr. Deaton sat down with me recently for a conversation about their book. Angus Deaton and Anne Case, thanks so much for joining me on Hardly Working. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Your work has had a tremendous influence on the way that we have thought in the last at least five years since you published your initial paper on rising mortality among non-Hispanic whites in the United States has had a tremendous influence on the way that we've been thinking about these issues. So I'm, I'm really glad that we have a chance to get together and, and hear about this book, which is an extraordinary book for anybody who's interested in the topic. But I wanted to, to start out, this is a podcast about vocation, career, and work. And I really like to have our guests kind of talk about their personal backgrounds and how they found their way into the field that they've given their lives to. So can we start there and just have you share a little bit about your own lives? Sure. I studied economics and math in college, and I encourage students now to think hard about those. They're a really good background for almost anything. But then I decided instead of going to Wall Street that I really wanted to go into something closer to public service. So I got a master's degree in, in public affairs from Princeton. But then I decided that a PhD in economics would be even more helpful. Not thinking I would go into academia. I thought I would go work for the World Bank or I would go work in an international organization. But I, it turned out I loved the life in academia. I loved the combination of students plus research and it being a place that I could go off and do almost anything. So I've, I've worked in international development, but as you say, most recently, the last five years, after Angus and I started on this topic, it became kind of all-consuming. But I think it's just been like one step at a time. What's interesting, like you, you stick your nose in and you think, is there something here that's worth doing? Yeah, well, so I grew up on another, in another world. I mean, I grew up in Scotland. My dad was very, very keen that I be educated, even, and I think largely because he had no education himself. He grew up in a mining village, and the village schools didn't let you go to high school, so he never went to high school. And after the war, after he'd been invalided out of the army, went to night school. And very slowly, <laughs> and I remember as a child, the, his tribulations of complaining about exams and you know, he had to get through high school, essentially, and then he had to get through a university degree, and then he had to get a professional qualification as a civil engineer. And after he did that, I grew up in the southern part of Scotland, and he managed to find, get me a scholarship to a very fancy school, which he could not have been able to afford otherwise, and which gave me a very fine education. I wouldn't say I was super happy there, but the quality of the education was terrific. You know, I did whatever it be from this very fancy school did. I went to Cambridge or Oxford, I went to Cambridge. I was a mathematician. I ran out of mathematical interest of mathematical ability after a while and got herded into economics. And for me, that was just fantastic. Always liked it. And, you know, I've been an economist ever since. And like Anne, I love this combination of teaching and just being able to follow your own curiosity. So nearly all of the things, including this work, is serendipitous in that, you know, we really didn't know. We're looking for something else and then find this. And we knew enough to know how important it was, but it was not what we were working on and it was not really what we were interested in. And so we simply took the opportunity to move away from that in, in this way. 
But I was brought to Princeton in 1983, and Princeton had been a wonderful place to work. Before I left England, I was a professor in Bristol, and the British University was going through a hard time then, and it was a place with very little money, and it was really hard to get work done. Princeton's been wonderful that way. They've always had enough resources to do the thing that we really wanted to do. That's a great story. Both of those are great stories. It's a sort of a recurring theme that I hear from people is that they don't actually often start out with plans for their lives. They sort of follow their interests and find them, as you said, Dr. Case, sticking their nose into things and finding new interests, surprising interests. Appreciate your, your sharing that, your experience with that. So let's get into the book. This book really builds on a research study that you all published in 2015 that sort of discussed this rising midlife morbidity and mortality among non-Hispanic whites. What drew you into looking at this topic in the first place? Well, we were working actually at different ends of this question. So I was looking at the fact that Americans were reporting themselves in worse and worse health year on year on year using data from the National Health Interview Survey and the, and the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance Survey. And the pain levels were rising in the U.S. And simultaneously, Angus was looking at whether there was a correlation between suicide and self-reported life evaluation, happiness. So he was looking geographically across the U.S., thinking, well, if the happiness measures mean much, we should see them correlate with suicide. And he found that suicide was rising. And then we thought, well, that's interesting. And it's also interesting that it's rising at a time when pain and self-reported health is, pain is rising, health is falling. But then we thought, like, well, put suicide in perspective. Let's look at it relative to what's happening to mortality overall. And much to our surprise, we found that mortality among whites was rising. And it was whites because it's whites who kill themselves. African-Americans are much less likely to commit suicide as are Hispanics. So it was a, a white question really to start with. And we found that white mortality had been rising since the late 1990s, and this was now 2013, 2014, when we were looking at this question, we thought everyone must know this who works on these issues. And we were really shocked to find out that that wasn't the case. Just qualify that a little bit. What we found was that all-cause mortality, total mortality, was rising in whites in midlife. You know, we were working with this midlife age group, 45, 54 or so, where we find a big rise in suicide. And so we focused, but that was what really knocked us off our chairs, which was that all-cause mortality should be rising for any group in the United States after 100 years of mortality decline. I mean, you know, I'd written a book called The Great Escape in 2013, in which, you know, one of the big facts of that book is mortality has been going down for 100 years through, you know, in many, most countries around the world. And that this is a huge benefit to mankind. And so to find even for this group, you know, and it's white, non-Hispanics, midlife, so it's qualified that mortality was going up was pretty astonishing and even more astonishing that no one seemed to know this. That was the initial run at this. And it happened, I always think of, of you and J.D. Vance in his book, Hillbilly Elegy, as being kind of a narrative exploration of the... His book is a narrative exploration in many ways of what you've done from a quantitative standpoint. But both your study and his book kind of hit at you know this moment in our history, our political history, in which it became kind of immediately like we're all trying to figure out what's going on. Everybody, all of a sudden, you had a ready audience for this research you've been doing. So walk us through the overview of the book for people who haven't read it yet. What's it about? What does it say? What are the major themes that you explore? In the book is really documenting the fact that American life has been coming apart for the working class. And in the book, especially for the white working class. And we document what that means in terms of despair. And then we try to dig in and figure out what are the deeper roots of why that's happening. So we start by documenting the fact that 
death from suicide, from drug overdose, from alcohol, liver disease, started rising around 1990. And not just for this middle-aged group, but actually for all adults aged 25 to say 64, so midlife broadly defined. And comparing that to what's happening in other countries who are not seeing the same kind of increase. Now, by itself, what we came to call as a shorthand deaths of despair, which the press picked up on, by itself, that would not have been enough to push all-cause mortality up if it weren't for the fact that at the same time, we stopped making progress on heart disease, which is still not fully understood why that's the case. But these were the three causes of death that were rising the most rapidly. And at the same time, we could document the fact that it was happening for people without a four-year college degree. Among people who had been to college, life continued to go well. Their deaths of despair were not rising. It was really something that was concentrated very heavily on people who hadn't been to college. That, that's a really very, very important part of the story. That part that these rising deaths from these two causes were confined largely to people without a four-year college degree is the sort of hinge on which all of the rest of the analysis in the book depends. And that these three rapidly rising causes of death in midlife just didn't seem to be affecting people with four-year college degree. Now, just to get the balance right, a third of the population has this four-year college degree. The other two-thirds does not. That division with the deaths rising in one group and not in the other is a very sharp pointer to where you would look for the ultimate causes of this thing. It's worth mentioning also before we move on, just that it's men and women who saw these deaths rising. Yeah. So... Again, let's go back to this very first paper where, you know, when we saw that all-cause mortality was rising, which was a very odd thing to see, unusual thing, we did what I think most people would have done, which is say, are people killing themselves? We knew that suicides were going up because that's where we started from. But then we looked for the other most rapidly rising things, and they were drug overdoses and alcoholic liver disease. And it was those three things together that Anne, I think, initially had given the name Deaths of Despair, which the press really picked up on. But very early on, and it was actually a comment on that first paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, Ellen Miara and John Skinner, who are health economists at Dartmouth, had noted that even though those were the three things that were rising most rapidly, even the sum of them was not enough to explain the rising on cause mortality. And that's where the heart disease story comes in. And the heart disease declines in mortality from heart disease have been driving the increase in longevity since about 1970. And that seems to have stopped, and especially so among people without a four-year degree. So even that is structured that way around. So just one other thing to add at this point is that paper was written in 2015. The data at that point went up to, I think, the end of 2012, maybe 2013. And it turns out that the drug overdoses started rising among African-Americans after 2013. We couldn't have known that when we wrote the first paper, but it's pretty clear in the book that the drug epidemic, at least, had passed into the African-American community much later, but is now in full swing there, You mentioned hillbillyology, and one of the things that surprised us, and which the press oftentimes gets wrong, is, yes, this is happening in the rural areas, but it's also happening in the suburbs. It's also happening in the big cities. So it's not as if it's just about what's happening in deep rural areas. And it's happening throughout the country. There's In every state, deaths from suicide, deaths from alcohol, deaths from drugs, rose between 2000 and 2017 for people between the ages of 25 and 64 taken together. So it's really widespread. So then we turn to what what we thought the causes were. That's really the second part of the book. I like, I wrote that word down when I was reading the book, the word that you used, hinge. 
as it relates to the question of higher education, that this is the focal point of this analysis. And I really want us to spend some time developing that. So give us any additional thoughts that you have on college degrees, anything you want to explain further about that. And then I've got a few questions that I want to get into about that. I think we like your questions, but <laughs> I mean, <laughs> let's start with something we don't think. We don't think having a BA is like having a vaccine, <laughs> right? I mean, it's not like someone gives you a BA shot. And once you've got that BA shot, you're exempt from killing yourself or drinking or whatever, or a suicide. It, it doesn't work that way. It's got to be something to do with the way that society is treating people with and without a BA. And in the book, we trace it ultimately back to the labor market and the increased difficulties less skilled Americans are having in the labor market. And indeed, you know, if you just look at rising GDP in the U.S., we've had 50 years of decline for people without a VA, sorry, decline in wages. And in fact, even in attachment to the labor force for men and for women after 1990, attachment to labor, after 2000, sorry, attachment to labor forces began to fall too. And we see that as corrupting their social lives. We think the meritocracy has very dark side to it too. And these people are really suffering. So one of the questions I wrote here was, you make this counterintuitive point that meritocracy can lead to social calamity. And I believe you're quoting from somebody else there. What does that mean? How does meritocracy, I think I wrote in my question to you, it was, we're Americans, we don't really believe that. I think a lot of people are exploring this right now. And it's not that, you know, no one's arguing that we go back to an aristocracy, we have a king, the positions are given out based on who your dad was. And, you know, both Anne and I are meritocrats and rose through meritocratic systems for which we're extremely grateful. But I think the downsides have not been very well appreciated. And there are a number of other books. There's a book out of Yale by Markowitz, I think. And the political philosopher, Michael Sandel. Michael Sandel, has a new book called The Tyranny of Merit, which is about this. And a lot of it actually goes back to Michael Young, who invented the term meritocracy in a book in 1958, in which it was not actually just a social climate, but promote. the end of the dystopian novel is a civil war between the educated and the not educated. He calls them the populists are the less educated people, which is a prescient term, and the educated people he calls the hypocrisy, which is a very unpleasant term. But just to put some of the things that have come out in this literature, one thing about a meritocracy is if people succeed in this meritocracy, they tend to believe that they did it themselves. So a lot of people have written about this. They tend to minimize the role of luck and maximize the role of their own efforts and hard work. And, you know, lots of us put in hard work and did, you know, put in a lot of effort. And if we hadn't, we wouldn't have succeeded. But we also had a lot of luck along the way. And help. And help, yeah. And, of course, there's, it's not just luck, but people tend to minimize the social contribution. You know, the fact that there's infrastructure, that there's a health system, that there are roads, that there's a legal system, there's a defense, that all these things that make it possible to succeed in the meritocracy, they tend to forget those. They also tend, there's a smugness about it. It can even border on contempt from people who have not succeeded. This is the downside of opportunity for all. Because they say they had the opportunity, I did it. If they didn't do it, it's their own fault. And again, it's not the issue of luck. They're minimizing luck and they're saying, well, it was laziness, it was idleness. You know, if they really worked at this, they could really have done that. And Anne's going to come in the second. Just like I say, on the other side, there's the danger that the people who are so despised, the people who haven't succeeded educationally, can believe that indeed maybe it partly was their own fault. But then they come to think the system's rigged. They think they have no chance. They think they're excluded from any role in their own society. And, you know, they finish up voting for Donald Trump. And, and actually, after a generation or two, the system is rigged. People who make it to the top oftentimes do what they can to board up the doors and 
pull up the ladders. So the idea that we all start, I was raised on the idea we all start on the same starting line and go. We don't all start on the same starting line. And the idea that, of course, people want to protect what they have for their own children, and they will do what they can to make sure that happens. So there's a lot that goes on that I think could bring down a meritocracy after a generation or two, because the people who make it to the top want to make sure that those in their own families follow them and they protect what they can. You know, we have grandchildren who live in New York City. We see nothing like the sort of brutal attacks or the brutal environment in which their parents had in getting them into even preschool in the city. So it's not an equal battle, even for four-year-olds. And, you know, the returns. So that's another part of it. If you have a meritocracy in a very unequal society, the returns to success become so enormous that you get these enormous fights over getting these resources for your kids or indeed for yourself. So that, you know, making partner or getting tenure might have been a nice thing once before. Now it's absolutely essential because it opens the gates to wealth and riches. And one of the consequences of that, I think, is there's a real tendency to cheat. So I think the decline in some corporate behavior or cheating scandals or like the, what was it, the college admission scandals when parents were bribing college officials to get their kids in. That's what happens when the stakes are so high in a meritocracy. And it doesn't even have to be illegal behavior, right? I mean, I have friends in Princeton who are currently spending thousands of dollars on coaches for their kids applying to college. Now, given that the college premium, meaning how much more you earn if you've been through a four-year degree relative to a high school degree, went from 40% back in 1980 to now being about 86% today, that's just such a stunning increase. It should have elicited, the economist in me says, that should have elicited a lot of other, a lot of kids going to college and getting that four-year degree, right? The wage being a signal, the price signal. And while getting a four-year degree has nosed up slowly, it's nowhere near where it should be given the premium that's placed now on having that degree. So there are clearly barriers that are stopping people from going to college. I really want to explore that some more. You know, you're talking about the sort of the compounding nature of advantage in American society. If you, you've got some advantage, you can hand that advantage plus some more advantage onto your children, and it sort of compounds generationally. My own experience of this was when we were raising our young children, we were living in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill, and there was this one very good preschool program there. It was public. And I remember for both of my two oldest, sleeping out on the sidewalk on a January night to be in line so that I could get my child into that school. And my memory of this is that all the other parents who were in that line looked pretty much like I did, white professionals who were willing to sleep on a sidewalk in order to get their kid into this one special program I definitely think that's that's true. I struggle with this, and I want to get your thoughts on it, because one of the things that I've noticed about this conversation is, among conservatives, is an unwillingness to acknowledge the idea of systemic advantage and disadvantage. That's a real stumbling block for a lot of conservatives thinking about it's less actually now a stumbling block than it used to be. It used to be a very hard and fast, like you get what you deserve in life. Now it's more like, well, we see systemic disadvantage for working class whites in America. We don't necessarily see it for, say, African-Americans or Hispanics. Have you encountered that sort of disconnect of we didn't really believe in it 30 years ago when William Julius Wilson and others were writing about these kinds of challenges, but now we believe in it because it's happening to our people in a sense. Is that? I yeah. think that's exactly right. We talk to college presidents and so on and say, you know, 
how many of these kids that you may move for Princeton, you know, come from this class and say, well, here's our statistics on the number of kids whose parents didn't go to college. For, what do they call them? First gen. First gen. But, you know, a lot of these kids are minority applicants. And I think if you are the parents of a smart kid in Princeton, New Jersey, let alone in Boise, Idaho, and in fact, in Princeton, New Jersey, it's probably not in Princeton, New Jersey, it's probably even worse. You can just forget about getting a kid in Princeton unless they're some sort of superstar math Olympiad chess grandmaster or something. I would take it in a slightly different direction, right? So at the time that William Julius Wilson was writing, Charles Murray was writing about the dysfunction in the Black family. And Wilson was trying to counter that with, well, whoa, 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 look at what's happening to these neighborhoods. Look, look, let's look at what's happening to the labor market when industry pulls out of the cities. Well, Charles Murray is writing now today about the white working class. And it's very much the same story where he just crosses out the word black and he writes about whites not being industrious enough. And if they were more industrious, you know, things would all fall into line. Although the book, I think one of the things that it does that we haven't trumpeted enough is to say, well, actually, if people just got lazy and left the labor market, then the wages that are being paid for people of that group should rise because the supply has fallen. And instead, what we're seeing is supply shifting in, you know, labor force participation falling, and wages falling at the same time, suggesting it's more about the demand for workers of that type mm-hmm. changing. And so we think it's really not a story about industriousness as much as it's a story about opportunity. This is why I want to have you and Michael Strain, maybe we can get Charles to come to just sort of have a conversation about this, because the perspectives on this, the, the data tells an interesting kind of nuanced picture about some of these issues in terms of mobility and wages and, you know, are Americans really falling behind or not? It is a thorny and complex issue to, to understand, you know, sort of what the wage and, and income data really tell us on this. We think it's crystal clear. Yeah, uh, that's good. But wages have been falling for 50 years and, you know, they go up in booms and they go down up to the booms but they never catch up with where they were. So even in the boom before the COVID crisis where, you know, less educated Americans were doing great, they were doing worse than any time in the 80s. Or 90s, or even in 2000. And as far as like mobility is concerned, you know, that there are U-Haul conservatives who say, well, then if it's not good where you are, just rent the U-Haul and go and find a better job where it is. Well, David Otter's work suggests that while there used to be a wage premium for less educated people in urban areas, that's no longer the case. There's been a hollowing out of those mid-level jobs that people used to be able to apply to. And so it doesn't make sense for them to move because the, the wages that they would be getting in the cities are no longer higher than they would have been in rural areas. Yeah, I just wanted to say something, unless we, we're not on all on one side of this issue, or all, you know, for or against. And, you know, we go along with a lot of what Charles Murray writes when it comes to, you know, the social impact of what's happening in the labor market and the, and the changes in social norms about having children out of marriage, which used to be so strong and not there anymore, and what the contraceptive bill has done and how it's divided people who are college buying and those who are not college buying. And I think that sort of stuff is very real and really very important. So, you know, we're not attributing everything. I mean, the stimulus to us is coming from failure in the labor market for less educated Americans. And, you know, we do think the data are very clear. I mean, a lot of the conservative case comes from adding in health benefits. And that's, I think, that to us is really adding insult to injury because these health benefits are there to benefit the provider is not the benefit. Mm, mm. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to argue against interest here or argue with your interest maybe, but so we know that the four-year degree is having this effect of dividing society. We know that four-year degrees, I think, 
correct me if you think I'm not reading you correctly on this, but we also believe that four-year degrees really pay off in terms of lifetime wages and, and so on. So just for the benefit of our audience, this could be both policymakers and non-policymakers, but is a four-year degree still the best pathway to the middle class in economic mobility? Well, you know, we, we're just reporting the data. And, you know, we started with the four-year degree simply because it's on the debt certificate. You know, we might be better to divide people by occupations or what sort of jobs they do or by something else. It's not geography, but you do get this big divide. And this 40 degree is increasingly dividing people on a lot of different dimensions. So if you've got someone who's marginally trying to decide whether to go to college or not, well, if you look at our data, you'd be pretty hard advised not to go to college if they want to go to college and if they can. But, and this is something you raised in your questions, you know, there are other countries like Germany is the an example that's usually cited, where there are many paths to social esteem and to dignified work, not all of which go through a four-year degree. And, you know, the Germans and the Swiss have limits on how many people get four-year degrees. I wouldn't advocate that. But, you know, when you talk to friends like us, professors in Germany or in Switzerland, they say, well, you know, my son decided he wanted to go for an apprenticeship. And they're proud of it. In a way that, you know, if someone in our social circle here said that about their kids, they'd be so ashamed-faced about it. So we've got ourselves into this situation, which I think is, you know, socially ridiculous one, which is we're giving enormous priority and premium to this division, which doesn't really exist. Even in Britain, where a lot more people are going to college, you know, there are many more qualifications that seem to count on the way up. And not just having a four-year college degree, which in Britain is only a three-year college degree. So it's not like the same amount of investment in it. And, you know, there are no deaths of despair in Germany or in Holland. And so I think, you know, we've got ourselves into a mess over this. We've rigged the system in another way as well, which is the K-12 education system currently in the U.S. is laser-focused on the minority of students who are going to go on for a four-year degree. The other students are really not given the kind of attention or skill set that would really help to set them up. That's a really heavy lift, but it's something that we have to come to terms with if we're going to come to terms with this problem and then let people decide. But there should be, as Angus said, you know, we think about maybe certifications that let people go and get jobs that they're certified, they have a good skill set. And it will give them a living wage. Or schemes where employers get together with junior colleges and where you can transfer, you know, if you've decided you don't really want to do this or, you know, you can transfer up or transfer out. And there's just, I mean, I think Michael Sandel has put it very nicely. He says the BA has become the root to dignified work and social esteem. I think we have to stop that. And if you think of the enormous amount we spend on education in this country, and if all of it, the only, you know, everybody who gets a BA is a success, and people who don't get a BA are failures, we're wasting two-thirds of that money. That's nuts. Yeah. You know, people frequently bring up, you know, like the European systems, the Swiss and the Germans. They have sort of a different problem, which is they make it easier for younger people to get into the workforce through these kinds of alternative pathways. But then they also have lower workforce participation, if I recall correctly, in later years, workers. They have a hard time keeping adults employed. To me, that's it could be attributable to the fact that if you learn a skill through an apprenticeship program, it may be overtaken by technology faster. That's one of the advantages of the four-year degree is that it builds in some flexibility, you know, the ability to pivot to new occupations, new skills, new technology. Well, that's but, the argument. But is there any evidence that Americans with a VA, you know, who got laid off from GM or something are good at pivoting to a different skill? I don't know. And also the Germans, by repeat, are very good you know, firms offering lifetime employment and retraining people, at least within the firm or within the industry, towards different sort of skills. I don't know that data very well, but it's also true that Germany has incredibly 
generous pension schemes. And I remember seeing data some years ago that the average retirement age in Germany was below the minimum retirement age on the grounds that you could get a doctor to certify disability and you could retire at 45 or 50 on basically full replacement salary. So one would have to factor that in too. But this is beyond. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about at one point in the book, you discussed about how when work is destroyed, working class life can't survive. Unpack that a little bit for us. So for about 20 years, we would have dinner with our colleagues, Sarah McClanahan and Irv Garfinkel, who run the Fragile Families Study, which is a longitudinal study. And they would tell us that people don't think they can get married anymore. They think one of them has to have a good job or they can't get married. And so we thought, oh, that's interesting, but we didn't think it had anything to do with us. And now we realize it has a lot to do with our work, that if you can't get married, what happens now in the U.S. is you cohabit and you'll have a kid. But those cohabitations are fragile, or what Andrew Churlin calls brittle. So they break up, then they repartner, then they break up. And so you get to midlife and you don't have a stable family life. And it came from the fact that you early on didn't partner because for life, you didn't marry, you didn't make it official because of the lack of a good job. So family life isn't stable. People also have decided that organized religion is not for them. And the institution of organized religion for 200 years was incredibly important in the U.S., and now more than half of, according to a Pew survey, more than half of white working class young adults don't affiliate with any church whatsoever. So there's the family life is no longer a pillar. Church, which was always a place where you could go and find solace, no longer a pillar. Your job is fragile. You belong to the Albright Cleaning Company now, whereas you used to belong to Hyatt Hotels. And so you just don't have the kind of supports that you would need to make, make a go of it. So that means, for instance, young men, you know, who used to be attached and be in a low-level job, but to a large corporation, are now attached to, as I said, the Albright Cleaning Company or, you know, someone who provides labor to Amazon warehouses or someone who provides labor to call centers. And they have no prospects. These are sort of dead-end jobs. And so the employer has very little attachment to the worker and the worker has very little attachment to employment. That means something. You know, I remember when I was a kid, if someone in Scotland got a job with Imperial Chemical Industries, ICI, which was seen as the best firm in Britain, it was like getting a job in the civil service. You had prospects. You had a lifetime employment. And it didn't matter if you're working in the mailroom or operating the elevators. You know, so that went away. And then without those prospects, it's hard to get a girl to marry you. And, you know, I think that we wrote in the original paper this idea that you're a 50-year-old man. You've never been married. You've had three long-term relationships, all of which produced kids. Your kids are now all living with other men. You don't know them. They hate you. You know, in middle life, instead of facing your midlife crisis with the guy with a tight family around you of loving wife and loving kids, you have this mess, and no wonder people's lives people looking for ways to destroy themselves. But you know, these employment, that good employment, these used to provide a lot of social life in and of itself. You know, Bob Putnam's guy who's bowling alone was bowling alone in a union hall. Now there's no union, there's no hall, <laughs> so he's not even bowling alone because there's no place to bowl. And so the social life that was around a lot of that work is just not there anymore. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting to me because for a long time, I subscribed to the cultural explanation. But the more you stare at this, the more you listen to people like you who are working and researching in this area, economics seem to be the main driver. Do you agree with that? that I think so. That it, this is, social is important. You know, if, if people still had very strong if there was strong social disapproval of having children out of wedlock, for instance, you know, the effects of the labor market would not have been so bad. 
But what what used to be shotgun marriages are now shotgun cohabitations that don't last. And so we think that that is, but we're economists, right? So I always take this with a grain of salt myself because, of course, we're going to say it's the economic underpinnings of it. But in this case, we really do think it's the economic underpinnings of it. At the very least, it's a a self-reinforcing system that can either sustain itself or collapse on the basis of a collapse in either one of those. And if you're looking for where the collapse started, you know, it'd be hard to argue against the economic picture of it. It's easier to be virtuous if you've got a good job. Yeah. Poverty is hard on your character. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I think it's been under, among conservatives, I think it's been undersold. So you have a chapter in the book or maybe it's a section of a chapter, I can't remember which, but it's, it's really fascinating research on the nature of pain, pain in both physical pain and psychological pain. And I thought that was so helpful for understanding the opioid crisis because opioids treat both kinds of pain. Talk about your insights on the nature of pain that people experience, both physical and psychological. Well, we're still very puzzled about this. I don't think we have solutions. And we've talked to neuroscientists who work on this. And we've worked with the psychologists who have papers in proceedings in the National Academy of Sciences. And there's this explosion of pain in the U.S. with younger cohorts having more pain than the previous cohort. So, And you get this really weird phenomenon that middle-aged Americans are in more pain than old Americans. You know, as an old American myself, I can tell you that... <laughs> Pain goes up with age, whatever the data is good. And of course, what is really happening is that these middle-aged people have had more pain throughout their lives than older people. And when they get to be old, they're going to be in a lot of pain too. So this rise in pain would seem to precede the opioid crisis and may actually be fueled by it. This one story is that, you know, opioids relieve pain in the short run, but make it worse in the long run. I mean, opioids are real fussy and bargain traded away your soul for short-run pain relief. So we don't know if, there, if there's, you know, a mysterious exogenous source. But, you know, we suspect, and I think you may have picked that up, that you shouldn't be separating the psychological from the physical pain. And a lot of physical pain, like lower back pain, you know, may well be to do with your life coming apart. That doesn't make it any less real. Right. It's not as if you can say, well, if you broke your leg, then I'm going to feel sorry for the fact you're in pain. But if you're just telling me you're really having a hard time socializing with friends or doing, going about your business because you had some lower back pain that no one can really get to the bottom of, we think that making that kind of a dichotomy is wrong. The neuropsychologists or the neuroscientists can now put you in a, in a scanner. Right, and play games with you. So one of the games can be a pass the ball game and you think you're passing the ball with two other people. And then suddenly you come to realize they've stopped passing you the ball. And when you realize that, the same part of your brain lights up as lights up if I actually physically cause you pain. So the connection, the mind-body connection we think is just incredibly important. And that the opioids landed on a really fertile soil because yeah. people were in pain. Pharma, big pharma went out and marketed where they thought people were going to be in a lot of pain. That was really where the explosion of the prescription opioid crisis took off. Yeah, and I, I was going to raise the study that I read earlier this year, maybe it was late last year, about I think they were focusing on Appalachia, where they found that it was in the coal mining industry. And they found that in counties where there were more coal jobs still in existence, there were higher levels of opioid addiction and abuse, and not just among people who are working there, but really permeating the community around the mines. So this idea that this hard physical labor sort of creates the physical conditions for allowing opioids in, people start using them, but then they also, their family members and friends, it's easier for them to get access as well. And so the question that raised for me when I was reading that study was, 
should we really be mourning the disappearance of these jobs? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. My dad and my grandfather were coal miners. My dad started out as a coal miner before, you know, he got out of it through the war. And, and you know, we should live in a world in which there's no coal mines. No one should be coal mining. You know, when I lived in Scotland, I went down a bit. You go two miles underground. And there are guys hacking the coal face, lying on their sides with the coal falling in behind them. And they move the pit crops so they don't get, they don't die. And my grandfather was killed by the mine. So you don't have to persuade me that these jobs shouldn't exist. But, you know, you don't want to overemphasize. It's certainly true that the pharma companies went to towns in Appalachia where there had been a lot of injuries and there was a lot of pain. And that was an entry point. And, of course, it spread. But, you know, if you were to read Sam Quinones' book, for instance, Dreamland, I mean, that's set in the town in Indiana. There ain't no coal mining there. You know, and there's a lot of the reverse going on, which is if you look at the structure of work now, you know, an assembly line is much more dangerous, more likely to hurt you place than working in McDonald's, for instance. So a couple of economists have systematically looked across the pattern of work. And that changing pattern of work should result in less pain, not more pain. So we have been eliminating these jobs. There's less people doing jobs that really hurt themselves. And so the increase in pain is even more mysterious. Sure, but, sure. Know, again, just think of the 50-year-old guy who's talking about before he's got these kids and doesn't know, know family life. Would it be really surprising if he starts getting a mysterious lower back pain? I don't think so. Okay. So you also have a chapter entitled, very aptly, I thought, False Trails because we all go down a lot of false trails on this topic and a lot of other topics. Talk about the false explanations and why they're false. Well, we should make sure to leave time for healthcare, which is a central part of our story. But yeah, I mean, the false trails were just that, you know, we're economists. People say economists link everything to income. So this pain, this addiction, these suicide should reflect the business cycle. And the answer is they don't. Or if they do, they reflect it at very low frequency. So it's there's no correlation at all anymore in the U.S. since 2008 between suicides and the business cycle, for instance. And it's just not true that as people got unemployed, they killed themselves in large numbers. Maybe they used to. There's an older literature on that. But it's not there anymore. So it's just that we wanted to dismiss this story that somehow it's all to do with economic conditions. Current. Current. So, you know, we're tracing back this long-term decline in the labor market for less educated Americans and long-term decline in quality jobs for less educated Americans. That's what we think is important, not the year-to-year fluctuation for the business side. But I should say, when we started this work, we thought that that was possibly going to be an explanation. And it really wasn't. All of these deaths of despair were rising before the Great Recession. They rose through the Great Recession and they rose after the Great Recession. A very smooth trend line up. It's, you can't actually find evidence of the Great Recession in this path. Although, you know, the Great Recession may have caused people to enter the labor market at a time when jobs weren't very good, that might affect their long-term prospects. So we do think it's possible that it will affect them, but later on in their lives when things really fall apart. You said that you wanted to talk about healthcare and you devote a lot of real estate in the book to the problems of the U.S. healthcare system. So let's get into that and just talk to us a little bit about, and it's not just big pharma we're talking about here. This is a much bigger issue than any kind of scheme on the part of drug companies to addict people. Talk to us about how you see the health system playing into this problem of deaths of despair. Well, let's not write off the pharma companies. <laughs> but I, it's not just that, is what I mean. No, it's not just yeah. that, but that's part of it. That's you know just this major disgrace in our system, which is other countries did not allow people to hand out hand out opioids like chocolates, drops or something. You know? So there's a unique American failing there. So for us, there are various parts of this, but one is it costs too much, and we don't get, I mean, the providers get a lot from what it costs, but the patients don't, so our life expectancy is the lowest in the rich world. Our pain levels are much higher, so, you know, we get a lot of mortality, a lot of morbidity, 
and we're paying these enormous sums. And it's just at a broad level, spending 18% of GDP on healthcare means that we've got that much less for everything else. And other countries don't do that. The next highest is Switzerland, which spends 12% of GDP. And if we could get down to 12%, we'd be saving a trillion dollars a year, which is 50% more than we spend on the total military. These are huge sums. And this is like we're all wandering around with this millstone around our necks. And it shows up in the federal level, it shows up in the local government level, and it shows up at the individual level. It's also the case, it's about the way that we fund our healthcare system, right? So unlike other wealthy countries, we tie it to employment. And there are a lot of people who think that their employer-provided healthcare insurance is a gift. But it's not a gift. It's coming out of something. So it's coming out of wages, it's coming out of profits, it's coming out of taxes that we pay to the states. But the, the employer-provided part means that if I have a low-skilled worker and I look at the worker and I have to pay 70%, that's the average, 70% of their $20,000 a year healthcare premium, that worker is not worth it to me. So I outsource that job. So we think that it actually, on top of whatever globalization and automation we're doing, we have self-inflicted this extra weight to get rid of low-skilled jobs in large companies. And almost no large companies in America anymore employ their own security staff, their food service staff, their drivers, cleaners, uh, their cleaners, all of that stuff, their telephone, even their, you know. What are they called? IT. I, no, well, not there's IT, there's bill paying stuff, but also I was thinking of the people who man the phone banks or woman the phone banks. Almost none of those jobs, which used to be good lifetime jobs in these firms, even though they weren't paid all that much. The firms don't have those anymore. And a lot of that is because, you know, as one executive said to us, you know, if this guy is worth, say, $30,000 to the firm, you know, the firm's prepared to pay $30,000 in wages or benefits or whatever. And if this single premium is eight or $9,000, the family premium is $20,000, we're just not going to hire them anymore. And this executive also told us that one year, their health folks came to talk to them and said our premiums are going up 40% instead of last year. This is a big company. And they said, well, there's just no way we can cover that. So they sent for the management consultants. The management consultants came in and said, well, here's how you can just get rid of all these people and you can replace them with outsourced workers, the bad jobs, the jobs that lead into people's marriages not happening and, you know, all the rest of the things we've been talking about. So this is just a crazy way to fund things. You know, if you wanted to do it through employment, you could have employers pay a share of their wage bill. That would be better. But, you know, because if you if it's 8,000 for an individual, you know, and you're paying that individual 300 grand, 8,000 is really neither here nor there. But if you're paying that guy 15 or 20,000, it's prohibitive. And so we've got to get rid of this. And it's been weird. There's this huge literature and a huge fight between liberals and conservatives about minimum wage, for instance, and what it does to employment. And there's, this is hardly mentioned. And we bring it up and people say, what are you talking about? And then we explain and say, ah, that's what you mean. But it's just not out there. And I don't know why it has not been a major topic of conversation. And that's before you get on to what it's doing to the feds or to the lawful government. There's also, I mean, it, we bring it up because when we talk in the book about rent-seeking and the fact that capitalism isn't necessarily working for many people, the healthcare industry has five lobbyists for every member of Congress. So they were able also to get in at the time that the relief packages were being put together at the beginning of the COVID epidemic. And they were able to, for example, take the teeth out of how much could be charged for a vaccine. I mean, so it's, they protect the industry, which is now very wealthy, but they're very well protected doctors, right? So the AMA 
through, uh, through their boards are able to control the number of seats in medical school, keep the salaries up. Pharma doesn't negotiate with the federal government over what are prices for drugs, right? The hospitals have been merging and merging. And when they merge, the newest data show prices go up, not down, as you might expect with synergies. But without the competition, the prices go up. So, you know, we've, we've actually seen an enormous amount of rent-seeking protecting this industry. And in the end of the day, what that does is it shakes money out of the pockets of regular people and sends it up the income distribution to the already pretty well remunerated. I'm going to take the fifth on health policy because I, I don't know much about it anymore. I used to work in it, but it's been too long. But I do think you make a really interesting point about foreign competition, offshoring, and these other factors that we attribute to the decline in entry-level, low-wage, or manual skill employment. There's another factor there that I agree. It it isn't often, if ever, discussed, as you mentioned. Just you said offshoring. That's true, but a lot of it's outsourcing. Yeah, outsourcing, that's right. Labor supply company. I mean, of course, you're internal office work can be outsourced to India or something, but you know, a lot of it is domestic. Yeah, no, we do. Contracting out is the business these days, and it's not just in, it's increasingly in the professional skills as well. I mean, it's just going to be very interesting to see how all of this shakes down over time. Yeah, um, for all of us. Yeah, no, that, that's what I mean. I think that some of these things that we've thought about as the problems of manufacturing workers could, and then not that far in the distant future start to affect some people who have been insulated up until now in terms it's of it's not going to take college administrators long to discover that you can teach by zoom from princeton uh-huh. and you can teach by zoom from Calcutta. right right <laughs> so you've been very generous with your time and i don't want to go on too much longer but i had a couple kind of bigger picture questions that i wanted to ask you and one of the things one of the notes that i wrote to myself as I was reading your book, was, you know, we're, we're deeply immersed in the culture of work in the United States. It's a big deal to have a job. It's more than certainly a lot more than money. I think that in some ways, this is a legacy of reformed Protestantism that said, you know, if you're economically prosperous, that's a sign of election. And, you know, therefore, you want to get out and prove that you're among the elect. Work, in a sense, becomes a kind of religion for Americans, in my view. Do you think that that's true? And do you think that helps explain the level of despair that people experience when they don't have work? I wouldn't draw it quite so tightly as that, but yes. I don't know what Anne thinks. She was brought up a Catholic, but it's brought up a Calvinist. (laughs) You know all about it, then. (laughs) I think you have to be a bit careful. I think one way of thinking about it is people find meaning in work. So you want a job that has some meaning. Now, working as a part-time parking attendant, parking lot attendant, I doubt, you know, where you're working for a faceless company that just supplies parking lot attendants. I doubt that it does very much for people. And, you know, I doubt you feel one of the elect because you're moving cars around the parking lot. I think if you were moving cars around in a parking lot, for General Motors, and you got invited to the office party, and you were thought you were part of this giant enterprise that was doing really well. Maybe you got paid a little bit in stock. Maybe there was a sense in your community that this was GM was an important employer in this community, and the community's fate depended on the company. I mean, all of these things you can imagine building a good life around. These outsourced jobs are not nearly so sure. So there's a now sort of famous quote, which is from, I think it's a British MP, who said that when he asked someone in his constituency where they work, they said, oh, I I just work in an Amazon warehouse. And he said, no one would have said, I'm just a coal miner. Mm -hmm. There would have been a lot more pride in in that job. I think work does bring people a way to organize their landscape and it gives them a sense of self and a sense of status. And when we've been out talking about this with people, they will say, I want a job. It's not like 
I don't want a handout. I want a job. So we think that it is something that brings a lot of meaning and that without it, people are in sort of a Durkheimian recipe for suicide because they don't have that sense of self, that sense of purpose. But I think the jobs do have to mean something. Um, there have been several accounts, one in Britain and one in the US, of people working in Amazon warehouses, for instance. And your boss there is this little handheld cleaning device that <laughs> allocates you tasks and so on. That seems, you know, and it goes after you if you've been in the bathroom too long. It's hard to believe, you know, and your informal employers or some asking company. And I'm not sure. So, and I think that's an important distinction because if there's a virtue in the job in and of itself, it's not necessarily just doing something that pays you money. I take the Protestant ethic point, and I'm sure it's better to have something than nothing. But I think, you know, this thing that used to be open to less educated Americans, which was a real job, good job, even if you weren't going to be, you know, you had prospects. There are all these stories of janitors finishing up as CEOs, and I, I dare say that was not very common. <laughs> But it was possible. It, it happened once, and it's been profiled extensively. <laughs> yeah. No, but we, yeah, I certainly knew people in Britain who started out in very humble jobs. And it was partly because no one went to college, right? So there was no credentializing prior to the firm, right? So the firm just had a large intake. And, you know, there were all these stories the CEO or maybe even owner's children had to go through all the jobs in the firm. And so if that was happening, then they would spot other people who were good. So there was an internal ladder of promotion, which doesn't exist in the same extent. Yeah, one of the more interesting phenomenons that I've seen of late is there's something of a little bit of a movement right now in the community college system to try to layer in the study of the humanities for kids who are going through technical education which I think is enormously important because I think it goes to that meaning and purpose question that the job can't fully satisfy. You need some frame of reference around the job and not just a set of technical skills. So I, I do think that there's something, there's something that we need to pay attention to there that we can't just train people to do work. We need to help them acquire this broader frame of ideas, a sense of purpose, of which work is a part. It's not the only thing. Because so work goes away and it goes, it can go away for a variety of reasons. You need other things that can help fill in that. Yeah. Uh, and on the other hand, you probably don't want to have people spend four years studying yeah, yeah. English literature. Yeah. Without any useful skills at all, right? So yeah. It is a call for a much more integrated education system with many paths through it. Yeah, I agree. Last question I wanted to ask you. We just had, a, as you may have noticed, we just had a presidential election and we have a new president coming in on January 21st. I'm curious, when President Trump was inaugurated, he talked about forgotten Americans, you know, forgotten Americans are forgotten no more. And I'm wondering, and it's too soon to tell, obviously, but when you look back over the last four years, what do you see, if anything, in terms of the fulfillment of that, that promise? that we were going to stop forgetting the kinds of people who have been forgotten and as a result of that forgetting have grown desperate. Well, there's 70 million people who seem to think he kept these promises pretty well. And I do think that, I mean, these are complicated matters, but, you know, neither of us are fans of Donald Trump. And um, he's sort of turned Washington into a circus. And we'll be glad to see that come to an end. But... Whether going back to Obama 2 or Obama 3, or whatever we're looking at now, addresses these problems is very, very unclear. It will take time. To it know. will take time. But, I mean, I think a lot of people felt really effectively disenfranchised and that there was a cosmopolitan educated elite that ran the country for their own benefit and did very little for them, and they were not listened to at all. It's not clear to me that will take a long time to change. It's certainly true that wages went up for less educated people through most of the Trump presidency, at least until the pandemic. But, you know, that was 
we think that would have happened without Donald Trump. You know, it was just one of the cyclical things. Well, it was, yeah, coming out of the Great Recession and then that long, slow expansion. After yeah. that, but yeah. in both employment rates and in wages, would probably have happened anyway. The Chinese thing is different, and that will probably go on. I don't think we'll go back to seeing China as, as you know, so cooperative. And I'm not sure how much that's going to help American workers. You know, some of these jobs, like jobs in coal or jobs in manufacturing, you know, they're doomed by automation, and no one's going to bring them back. But it is true that many of these people felt that Donald Trump was a voice for them in a way that previous administrations had not. And they will regret that passing, even if I don't think it was done very much good. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, I don't think, I'm not a fan either, and I, I don't think he handled his presidency well, and I don't think he focused nearly enough on the issues that he raised. However, with regard to the kinds of populations that we've been talking about today, on the other hand, he did put this on the national agenda. And I don't think there's, I agree with, with 70 million plus votes behind him and his reelection. I don't think there's any chance that it is going away. I think it's going to be with us. And then we need to really focus on what are the effective policy solutions. So your book, enormous contribution to that debate. And I look forward to hearing more from you and hopefully being able to collaborate with you as we try to speak into that policy debate with ideas that will work and really provide the kind of future that we want to see for all Americans. So thank you again for your time today. This has been wonderful. Thank you very much much. for reading the book and for such great questions. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It certainly has. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.